And as you know, Dana, it's, it's not. It's 1,100 schools that come together and make decisions in a collaborative representative democracy. Those schools always have been in charge, and those schools will, will be in charge moving forward. They collectively, with the help of us in the national office, have to make decisions in this new legal context. But we also have to help them determine what it is they want to ask from Congress. The legal landscape as it exists today uh, simply will not support and sustain the way college sports is conducted today. And so we need to help change that landscape if people want to continue to see events like this championship being conducted the way it's been conducted this tournament. I think this tournament's put on full display the beauty of college sport. We've seen Congress be engaged in a variety of ways. And this is where Congress needs to come in as well. We've been working with Congress and we need to continue to work with Congress to create one single federal landscape. It still is a case that we have got to have Congress help us find a single legal model. Obviously hard to get things through Congress right now. Both chambers of Congress understand the issues and want to help us. And this is where Congress needs to come in as well, to ask from Congress work with the schools and the Congress. We need the help of Congress. If you, Congress, want college sports to continue in these fashions over here, we need your help and your assistance to do that. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found on my podcast website. That is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And if you want to shoot me an email, please feel free to do so. You can uh, send that to cagerredux at gmail.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X at gmail.com. All right, today is November 9th. 2022. And boy, it was an interesting evening, Tuesday night, as we watched the election results roll in. And, you know, I had talked about doing episodes before the election to kind of set the table for the NCAA and Power Five's campaign in the Senate, which really dates back to 2019 and how it's evolved and what the lay of the land is. But I decided to hold off until the election itself. And I'm glad I did that because things are not playing out the way I had anticipated. I expected to wake up Wednesday morning to learn that the Republicans had regained the Senate and had a solid working margin in the House. But as things sit right now, it looks like the Democrats may retain control of the Senate. There are still three races that have not been called, and the Democrats have 48 Senate seats. The Republicans have 49. They lost Pennsylvania. I think they weren't expecting that. So that makes their road to 51 much more difficult. And we are looking at a runoff in Georgia yet again. So hopefully it won't come down to that seat. I mean, it could, but boy, things could get really interesting here. So I am going to talk about what's going on in Congress and look at it through the lens of the status quo in the Senate with the Democrats in control and then the Republicans in control of the House. It does change things substantially because when the NCAA engaged with Congress in 2019, they ran it through the Senate because the Republicans controlled the Senate. And this is a Republican show, the NCAA Power Five congressional campaign. And there are now currently 12 potentially consequential bills that have been introduced in Congress since 2019. Most of them came out of the Senate. And I'm still going to go through all those bills and the timeline because it really does tell a story and it's important to understand going forward how we got from there to here in terms of how the issues have evolved, not just the congressional campaign, but at really a values level, I think, what the gut feeling is in terms of what's politically viable in Congress right now. And I think you see some movement in the evolution of the bills. The first bill that came out was the Mark Walker bill in March of 2019 that was pro-athlete on its face. And that got the NCAA all jacked up and concerned. And then we had the California state legislature putting the final touches on the California name, image, and likeness law, the Fair Pay to Play Act, SB 206. And that's when the NCAA formed this working group and began to formulate their strategy to basically end the athletes' rights movement by eliminating 
any external regulatory threat to their regulatory authority or their business model, including their compensation limits and eligibility rules. And that's when the NCAA and Power Five went on offense. Historically, they had been very defensive in their relationship to external regulatory threats. Things would pop up occasionally, and it was really a game of whack-a-mole for the NCAA and Power Five. They get hauled into Congress to try to explain their anti-competitive behavior in postseason football, for example, that happened in 1997, then again in 2003, and they, you know, they whack those concerns down, and then they go on about their way. And the same was true with federal lawsuits. They'd gotten a lot of mileage out of that magic dicta from the Board of Regents decision, which they interpreted to mean that the U.S. Supreme Court had blessed the NCAA as the sole regulator in college sports and that they were untouchable. And federal courts really bought into that. So the NCAA was very effective at their whack-a-mole game in federal courts. And then, of course, we had the same thing in state legislatures. There really weren't any meaningful threats. An occasional bill might pop up that was athlete-friendly, and then the NCAA would dispatch their lieutenants and and suppress the insurgency. And then, of course, we also have had some episodic action by administrative agencies like the Northwestern case in 2014, where the Northwestern football players tried to unionize and they ran that through the NLRB. And although the NCAA was not a party to that proceeding, Northwestern University was, the NCAA was right there and they were working behind the scenes to try to whack that mole down. And they did. They were successful. So it wasn't until 2019 with this Walker bill, with the California legislature getting involved and then other states talking about jumping in, states that were concerned about losing a competitive advantage to schools in California, that the NCAA just came in and said, we're just going to kill the snake here. We got to end all of these external challenges to our regulatory authority, to our business model, and most importantly, to our revenue streams. Because all of these external regulatory threats, really beginning with the white suit in 2006, were driven by athletes challenging the NCAA's compensation limits and the unfairness of those limits. And the NCAA and the Power Five just can't envision a world where athletes are treated as free Americans. And I'm talking about the profit athletes in football and men's basketball and the Power Five. And there's all this hand-wringing and all this concern that if the laborers who actually provide the value in the product were allowed to share in the fruits of their labor, then that money's going to come out of the pockets of a bunch of rich white guys, you know, who are benefiting from that labor. That's really at its essence what this whole campaign has been about. And they've wrapped it up in some deceptive, shiny packaging. But the, the fundamental truth remains, and that is that these people are very happy with the status quo that existed before the Austin decision and before the nil market, and they are going to do everything in their power to restore that status quo. And it has been Congress, Congress, Congress. They have run out of other options, and they certainly aren't going to self-regulate in a way that really uh, brings the business model into the 21st century. There are just too many people with too many profound conflicts of interest, financial conflicts of interest, who aren't going to stand for that. They're going to do whatever they have to do to preserve their gravy trains. And they are not going away. Even though their pathway may be more difficult after what happened last night, they won't have uh, clear-cut majorities in both chambers. And, and if that had happened, then I think you would see the NCAA and Power Five through people like Roger Wicker, Republican senator from Mississippi, and Tommy Tuberville, Republican senator from Alabama and some of the other Republicans who've been involved in this going back to 2019, you would see them pressing the gas and saying, we're just going to get this done, that it would come, it would go. And the sports media, the compliance sports media would uh, write about it for a couple of days and then it would just disappear. But the opening montage may sound familiar to folks who've been following the podcast. And it's the same montage that I used after Mark Emmert's March 31st 2022 press conference at the Final Four. And I, I did an episode on that. All of those quotes came from that single press conference, and it was maybe, I don't know, 40 minutes long. And it was, in my judgment, carefully scripted to make that case, that public case, when there are a lot of people paying attention to what was happening in college sports because of the Final Four. And Emmert used that opportunity 
for a stump speech on the necessity for congressional intervention to save college sports from the dark forces of free markets and fair and open competition. That's just a, an example of how focused the in-system stakeholders have been on this congressional bailout. And, you know, you have that expressed in this interim policy. People talk about the interim name, image, and likeness policy that went into effect on July 1st of, of 2021 as a permanent rules change. And it wasn't. To this day, the NCAA hasn't changed a single word of bylaw 12.5, which regulates name, image, and likeness. And they never intended to do so. They were always looking at Congress providing them the federal protections, powers, and immunities that would have allowed the NCAA to do nothing on name, image, and likeness. So uh, under this interim policy, it was interim until what? And there were two things identified in, in that interim policy. One was voluntary rules changes, and that didn't happen. It's not going to happen. The second was a bailout from Congress. So that is what the NCAA and the Power Five have been pointing to all along. And uh, b based on what happened Tuesday night, it looks to me like the congressional option in the short run is far more complicated for the NCAA and Power Five than I think they expected it to be. It doesn't look to me like the NCAA and Power Five are just going to be able to waltz through a Republican-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate and impose their will on the college sports world and on these athletes. Now they've got to step back and reassess their chessboard, and that's why they pay the top lobbying firm on the planet, millions and millions of dollars to help them readjust. And they're going to readjust. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think that may look like. But, you know, the Roger Wickers of the world, the Tommy Tubervilles, Greg Sankey, Nick Saban, they're not going anywhere. These guys are motivated. And I talked about that in the last episode. They want these federal protections and immunities because they want to shut down the athletes' rights movement. They want these athletes to be put in their proper place. They need to sit down and shut the hell up. You got your nil. You don't deserve the nil, but you got it. They don't talk about why they got it. You know, they got it not be because of the NCAA, but in spite of the NCAA and through Mark Emmert's uh, arrogance and mismanagement of the whole nil issue in Congress. And of course, they lost their request for complete antitrust immunity in the Austin case. So this interim policy was really a last-ditch effort to get something in place before the July 1st deadline. It is turned around in many ways to bite the NCAA in the butt because the external regulatory force that is free markets is making a mockery of all of the sky is falling narratives the NCAA and Power Five painted around an open and free name, image, and likeness market. And I've said this before, and it's important to say again, and that is that the longer that the nil market or the transfer market or any of these aspects of the NCAA business model that are now operating through the lens of free market principles rather than NCAA restrictions, the longer those are in place, the harder it's going to be for the NCAA and the Power Five to march into Congress and make the case that those new components of the marketplace are killing college sports and that we're on the verge of the fatal collapse of college sports and the end of college sports as we knew them. All, all that stuff that the NCAA and Power Five are so good at using to try to scare decision makers. Get them scared, get them where you want them, and then impose your will. So let me talk about a few things that I think are consequential coming out of what happened last night and how it looks like these unresolved races are likely to play out. And so much of the discussion about the NCAA Power Five campaign in Congress has run through their campaign in the Senate. That's where they started. And there's a reason that they started there, because that's the demographic they want. Uh, the United States Senate is overwhelmingly white. I think 88 senators of the 100 are white. The average age is 64. It is overwhelmingly male, 76 male senators, 24 women. And it is overwhelmingly white male. Two-thirds of the United States Senate are old white men of extraordinary wealth and privilege. That's the audience the NCAA wants when it's selling 1950s compensation limits. 
and a 1950s business model. And that's why they started in the Senate. And the Senate was controlled by the Republicans in 2019 and 2020. The House was controlled by the Democrats. This has been a partisan debate from the very beginning. And the Republicans in the Senate have been carrying the NCAA's water for them and the Power Five's water for them. So there really hasn't been a lot of discussion about what's happened on the House side. The Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, which I'm going to talk about here in a minute, got some attention when it came out, but it really never gained traction. And I think that most of the discussion has occurred in the Senate and most of the media coverage is based on what's happened in the Senate. And as the Senate campaign has evolved since 2019, you've had interested stakeholders in the Power Five conference commissioners going to the Senate, not going to the House. George Klyovkov and uh, Greg Sankey, uh, Power Five conference commissioners, Klyovkov from the PAC-12, Sankey from the SEC, they went to meet with Maria Cantwell and Marsha Blackburn, two important senators on the Commerce Committee. And again, the Commerce Committee is so important here because it has frontline jurisdiction over sports-related issues. And the assumption has been that any legislation regulating name, image, and likeness or athletes' rights or anything having to do with college sports is going to originate in the Senate Commerce Committee. So all this discussion has run through senators who are pumping the NCAA agenda or a handful of senators on the Democrat side who are trying to get athletes' rights on the radar screen. But very little discussion in the House. And why that's important right now is that it looks like the NCAA Power 5 campaign might have less resistance in the House because the Republicans will control the House. But a couple of very important things have happened in the House that I think are a problem for the NCAA and Power 5. The first is that Anthony Gonzalez, who I just I mentioned just a minute ago, he was a, or I guess technically still is, a Republican House member from Ohio. And he played football at Ohio State. He played in the NFL for the Indianapolis Colts. And he was really the opening face of this name, image, and likeness debate starting in the Senate Commerce Committee in February of 2020. And at that first hearing on February 11th, Anthony Gonzalez was the very first witness to testify. So he's a sitting House member comes over to the Senate Commerce Committee. Actually, it was a subcommittee of commerce chaired by Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas. So Gonzalez comes in and he is the golden boy. He's a very appealing guy, very likable guy. He's trying to make it sound like he really is all about trying to get athletes some name, image, and likeness compensation. But then when he was talking about what legislation ought to look like, he was NCAA right down the line. And it was a red flag to me from the very beginning. But he was the face of this. And then in September of 2020, this was right after the fourth hearing in the Senate, Gonzalez comes out with a bill called the Level Playing Field Act. And it's co-sponsored by Emanuel Cleavers. And he's a Democrat. He's African-American. So you had uh, bipartisan support. But it contained what I call the three death provisions that would end the athletes' rights movement. It had preemption of state name, image, and likeness laws. It had antitrust immunity. And it had a provision that athletes can't be employees. And if the NCAA and Power Five get those three things, there is no pathway, no legal or regulatory pathway for athletes to assert their rights in a way that would be enforceable. And those three death provisions are really the essential components of all this Republican-sponsored legislation that the, the Senate was trying to run through, the Wicker Bill, the Rubio Bill, and the Moran Bill. And then there's another bill in the House I'm going to talk about here in just a second. So Gonzalez was a really important figure here, at least symbolically, but he decided not to run for re-election. And he was getting a lot of heat from a Trump candidate that was going to run against him in the primaries. And Gonzalez was trying to I think be a little more moderate in the Republican spectrum. And Gonzalez said that he was getting some nasty, hateful communications from people on the Trump side. And so he just said, I'm done. And he didn't run for re-election. So he's not going to be sitting in the next Congress. So you had Gonzalez really just fading into the background. And in that vacuum, you had another House member from Ohio, also a Republican, Steve Shabbat. And uh, Shabbat put together a bill that he introduced in May of 2021 that was virtually identical to a bill that Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas on the Senate side, put out in February of 2021. 
And Shabbat's bill had the three death provisions, and it was, I believe, more draconian than the Gonzalez bill. So you had Shabbat on the House side, really ready to be a mover and shaker for the NCAA. But guess what? He lost Tuesday night. So Shabbat's gone. Gonzalez is gone. There's not another Republican on the House side who has really been involved in trying to get this legislation passed with these death provisions that would end the athletes' rights movement. And of the seven congressional hearings that have been held on bills that relate to college sports and name, image, and likeness and athlete issues, only one has been held in the House, and that was the very last hearing that we've had, and it was in the House Commerce Committee, and that was on September 30th of 2021. So, We really don't have a sense of who the Republicans may be in the House that are going to be carrying the NCAA and Power Fines water. They're they're two top players, you know, Gonzalez and Shabbat. They're gone. They're no longer on the roster. And so it'll be an interesting shift in strategy if the NCAA decides to focus their attention on the House. I think when you look at this legislation through kind of a demographic lens, and we know why the NCAA went to the Senate, but you know the House demographics are more favorable for athletes, but it's still a, a white man's show. And a lot of people just associate the House with a more representative look of the mosaic of America demographically. And it is compared to the Senate, but that's a pretty low bar. But, you know, you got 435 House members, 309 or 71% are white, 58 or 13% are black. 46 or 11% are Hispanic, 16 or 4% are Asian, and you have 6%, I'm sorry, not 6%, 6 or 1% Native American, and it's also overwhelmingly male. 71% of the House is male, 29% female. So that's a better demographic than the Senate, but it is not a firewall for the athletes. I do think it's important that you have a a critical mass of African-Americans that have joined forces to have a unified voice on issues that are important to them. Where they may stand on these issues is, is hard to tell. Honestly, you would think they would land on the side of athlete interests, but once you're in the political arena, you just never know. You're in the fun house. So what I'm going to be paying very close attention to here in the next few weeks are comments from people like Greg Sankey and Roger Wicker and Nick Saban and Tommy Tuberville and Jerry Moorhead, who the president of UGA, who is the head of the Division One Board of Directors and also sits on this transformation committee. What are they saying about Congress? You would think they would address that issue directly, but they may not. They may not want to talk specifically about their congressional campaign, but however they talk about the issues in college sports post-midterm, I think will be instructive. And so I will be paying attention to that and I will interpret those comments for you. And of course, we'll also be paying close attention to how the compliant sports media covers comments that are relevant to the regulation of college sports and the future of college sports. And then the other thing I'm also going to be paying attention to is whether we have a voice emerge on the House side that is speaking the language of these federal protections and immunities that the NCAA and Power Five so desperately want, preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees. And then, of course, you always have the question of where do these athlete issues fit on the priority list, both on the House side and the Senate side. We have a pretty good sense of what that's been on the Senate side, and these issues have gotten a very high level of priority when the Republicans were in control of the Senate. Not as much with the Democrats in control, but on the House side, we really haven't seen much discussion. So now that the the House may be a, a better forum, at least through political lens for the NCAA and Power Five, how do they get it on the radar screen in the House? And that's going to be a challenge, I think. And then I think we also have to look at what happened last night through the lens of these other pathways that athletes and athletes' rights advocates have used to try to push athletes' rights forward in the face of the, the, you know, this potential game-changing federal intervention that would 
and the athletes' rights movement. And I think that as the likelihood of congressional action in the short run decreases, the importance of those other pathways increases. And so we, we have all of these administrative agency actions that haven't really progressed very far, I don't think, or at least there's no evidence of that in the public record. And of course, remember that when Roger Wicker gave his interview to uh, Sportico, their legal analyst, Michael McCann, he made the observation that the athletes' rights issues, the name, image, and likeness issues aren't on President Biden's radar screen. And I, I really thought that was an interesting observation, and I'm not sure how he arrives at that understanding. But, you know, he and Maria Cantwell talk all the time, and Wicker's been in her ear trying to get her to buy into his agenda. So he probably has a sense of where Biden stands. And Wicker just said that this isn't a, a priority for the Biden administration. So we don't know what's going on with the administrative pathways. But if the Democrats retain control of the Senate. And if this midterm is a bellwether for what 2024 may look like, the Democrats are looking much stronger, quite frankly. And if they are viewing this midterm election with an eye towards 2024 and the possibility of Democrats holding the White House through 2028, that may change the interest level in trying to get something done at the agency level. And we have a couple of charges pending with the National Labor Relations Board to try to get football and basketball players classified as employees rather than quote-unquote student athletes. And Ramogi Huma, the head of the National College Players Association, has had a charge on the football side for a while. And Michael Shu has had a similar charge on the basketball side. And it's just not clear how far those charges have progressed and how they're going to be resolved. And of course, Huma is on the record as saying that his organization is using a kitchen sink approach. And they filed a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights alleging disparate racial impact but through the NCAA's compensation limits. They filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So you have all these balls in play at the administrative agency level. And if the Democrats feel much more secure in holding executive power, you might see more aggressive action there. But a counterweight to that, and one that I haven't really talked as much about, and this may inform Wicker's thinking on whether Biden's going to get all lathered up about uh, a bill that shuts down the athletes' rights movement, but the NCAA's public relations firm, Bully Pulpit Interactive Inc., comes out of a political climate and culture, and most of the people who work for Bully Pulpit had worked on political campaigns on the Democrat side, either for Obama or for Biden and Harris. And when you look at their bios, it's really interesting. They've held some high-level positions in both the Obama administration and then the Biden-Harris campaign. And they have worked for some very high-profile Democrat politicians at the national level, you know, senators and representatives. So they are really connected into the Democrat infrastructure. And you have to believe that they've been paid $40 million since 2015-2016 by the NCAA to put together a comprehensive communications, marketing, and branding campaign. And they've been tasked with trying to resolve the chronic hypocrisy in the business model, where behind the scenes, you have this rapacious greed driven by commercial interest and a professionalized model. But to the outside world, the NCAA and Power Five are still professing amateur virtue. I think when the NCAA hired Bully Pulpit in 2015-ish, really had lost the capacity to try to manage that hypocrisy from a public relations standpoint. So they bring these people in and they're very, very good at what they do. But they view this through a sort of a woke political lens. So they're trying to make the NCAA look woke to the outside world, if that's possible. You know, they, they have a tough job here and maybe they're earning that $40 million. But the fact that the NCAA has a long-term relationship with this PR company and they've paid them at least $40 million, that, that's just what I've calculated from the NCAA's Form 990 tax returns. It, it could be much more than that, but that's a lot of money. That's a lot of advice. That's a lot of manipulating the public perception, but they have inroads to the heart of the Democrat 
machine. And then the other thing you have to remember is that Donald Remy, who was really the architect, along with Mark Emmert, of the NCAA's arrogance campaign in 2019 in its federal litigation strategy and its lobbying strategy, and it failed. And I believe it failed in large measure because of its arrogance and its audacity. But Remy turns around and then moves into the Biden administration, and he has a very high-level executive appointment in the Department of Veterans Affairs. So it's not as if the NCAA and the Power Five don't have meaningful power bases on the Democrat side, even though this is run through the Republican senators actually getting the legislation in place. They've secured their interests kind of across the board. If you look at it just from the standpoint of managing the chessboard at the political level, and this is a political game, and it was the NCAA who went to Congress in 2019. Congress didn't come to the NCAA. This, again, as I said earlier in the episode, this is the NCAA and Power Five going on offense to eliminate all of these external regulatory threats. So it has been a political issue for going on, what, four years now. And in that environment, the NCAA and the Power Five have really positioned themselves well to work both sides of the fence. So they have the Republican senators doing their bidding, and then they have these executive branch influences, Bully Pulpit and then Donald Remy, who speak the language of the Biden administration. And I think that's really important. It hasn't gotten much attention. So you, you have some very complicated dynamics right now. But my hope would be that these administrative agencies would act with a, a sense of independence within the authority they've been granted by Congress, and that they're going to push these issues forward and do the right thing. And the right thing in my judgment is just to give the athlete to provide the value in the big time college sports marketplace, the same rights and protections as any other American. Shouldn't be a big thing, but it is in this fantasy world that we've created in college sports and the value system and the mythology, the amateurism, student athlete, collegiate model, all, all that stuff. So I think that the administrative pathways are more important now than they were before. And I also think that this Johnson suit that's in the Third Circuit is also more important now. And remember, that suit is under the Fair Labor Standards Act, and the athletes who are from lower-level Division One, you don't have the big-time profit athletes from the Power Five schools, which I think is a weakness in that case. I've, I've talked about that. But you have this suit trying to get employee status because in order to get benefits under the FLSA, which governs hourly workers and minimum wage and overtime and all that stuff, in order to get those benefits, you have to establish that you're an employee. And that single issue has been certified to the Third Circuit. They're going to hear oral argument, I think, on December 15th. We'll get a sense of uh, what they're thinking, maybe, from the oral argument. And then they'll issue a decision probably in the late spring, early summer. That's my estimated timeline. But that's a much more important suit right now because it looks less likely that the NCAA and Power Five are going to get the death provisions. And one of the most important ones is that athletes can't be employees. And if they get that from Congress, and Congress can provide that, and they can change these laws, they can change the NLRA and the FLSA and any other federal labor law to specifically exclude college athletes as employees. And that's what they want. And if that happens, this Johnson suit disappears. And so do the agency pathways. Well, the NLRB pathways are mooted if athletes can't, as a matter of federal law, be employees, which means, of course, that they can't engage then in collective bargaining. You have to be an employee under the NLRA to get enforceable rights. And even though the NLRA and the FLSA serve entirely different purposes, I think if the Third Circuit says, yes, athletes can be employees, well, they, they could do one of two things. They could say they are as a matter of law. I don't think they're going to do that. I think what they're really going to say is they could be employees, but it has to be proven up in discovery. Because what the NCAA is saying in that case is that as a matter of law, they can't be employees because of this Seventh Circuit case that was a, just a terrible decision. But the Third Circuit, I think, will hopefully will say, look, you don't get immunity as a matter of law. You don't get immunity from the FLSA. 
the athletes have the right and the opportunity to prove that based on what they actually do, they are indeed employees under the act. And so we're going to allow the case to go forward. We're going to allow discovery. And then we may have to revisit this on the backside of all of that. But that's an important pathway right now. And if the Third Circuit does that, and if the Third Circuit doesn't shut the door on these athletes under the FLSA, I think that might provide some momentum on the NLRA side. And the reason that's so important is that it's through the NLRA that athletes could force a seat at the table with the NCAA and the Power Five and put on the table issues that go beyond compensation and health and safety and work conditions and culture and climate. And those are so important to athletes. And the NCAA and Power Five are fighting like hell to prevent that because they don't want the athletes to have a voice or any control over their work conditions. They want to have absolute iron-fisted control as they always have. And then just one more important point on the Johnson case and then these NLRB charges. And that is that in all three of those cases, the movements the petitioners have taken the position that the NCAA is a joint employer with the institutions, and that is really important. And the administrative agency pathways haven't really gotten to the point where that issue has been addressed. But in the Johnson case, uh, and this has gotten very little attention, but it's very, very important, the district court judge issued an order that said that the NCAA was indeed a joint employer with the universities that were defendants in that case, meaning that the NCAA could be held responsible as an employer. And that solves a lot of these jurisdictional issues between the NLRA and then state law when it comes to labor rights. And it would create a a clearer pathway, an easier pathway for all NCAA institutions to be brought under the umbrella, essentially, of the NLRA. And that's so important. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but that's a big threat to the NCAA. So we're going to be keeping an eye on that as well. And it's also going to be interesting to see whether and what the Greg Sankeys of the world and the Roger Wickers of the world have to say about the Johnson case or or people from the NCAA or one of the governing boards. What, What are they going to say about that now? post-midterm? What are they going to say about these administrative agency pathways? Again, we'll just pay attention to that, but there will be tells, like a poker tell, from these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. They, they always are because they're always using the media to try to m- manipulate the message. And again, that's why you pay Bully Pulpit Interactive over $40 million since 2015. Every comment is an opportunity to manipulate And so we'll see. We'll know kind of what they're thinking. I guess one thing I want to talk about a little bit is the fact that I believe the NCAA and Power Five have really been looking at their chessboard with the assumption that they always were going to have the opportunity to re-engage with a friendly Congress. I don't know if that's true right now. And I think they also then looked at these administrative pathways and the Johnson suit and perhaps the House suit. I haven't talked about House. That's the name, image, and likeness suit that's pending on the West Coast. It's a class action suit. It's very similar to O'Bannon. In fact, the NCAA tried to get House dismissed, saying that it's really O'Bannon 2.0. We've been there, done that. You can't relitigate these issues. And the district court judge, Claudia Wilkin, who was the same judge who heard Austin and O'Bannon, she denied that motion to dismiss after the Austin decision. So Austin was issued on June 21st of 2021, on June 24th, just three days later, Judge Wilkin issues an order denying the NCAA's motion to dismiss, saying the case can go forward. It's now in the class certification process, but that case is a big threat to the NCAA. And as I've talked about in in other episodes, including this last episode, where I talked a little bit about the Wicker Bill, some of these Republican bills that are NCAA Power 5 friendly have retroactive antitrust immunity specifically designed to capture this house suit and wipe it off the books. But I think you've had the NCAA and the Power 5 looking at all these threatening pathways as opportunity as well, assuming that they always had an ace in the hole in getting a piece of protective federal legislation. But if they get a favorable ruling from the Third Circuit, if the Third Circuit says, These athletes can't be employees under the FLSA as a matter of law. Or one of these agencies says 
no, there's, we can't go forward for one reason or another. Or if the NCAA in this House case comes up with some new pro-competitive justification for its name, image, and likeness compensation limits that passes the blush test, you could have a different result there than you had in Austin or Urbana. There are a lot of possible outcomes in some of these pathways that could benefit the NCAA and the Power Five. So I think they feel like they have a bit of a free shot so long as they had the possibility of getting all those wiped off the map through the three death provisions in an NCAA Power Five friendly bill from Congress. That's less likely now. That safety net doesn't have as much support right now. So I think these other pathways are just more important. That then opens the door to another possibility. And I've talked about this a little bit, but it's always been my belief that the Power Five particularly the SEC and the Big Ten, who are really driving the changes in the Power Five football market, that they have always had in their back pocket a plan to sit down and negotiate with athletes or appear to negotiate with athletes. And that that was their ultimate fallback position. They could see what they could get from Congress. They could see how some of these things played out in federal courts or state legislatures or federal administrative agencies. And if none of those pathways got them what they wanted, they always had the opportunity to sit down and just try to work out some kind of an agreement with the athletes that ease some of these external regulatory pressures. And I think that fallback position operates with the assumption that athletes will not be employees. But if the SEC and the Big Ten in particular, they're driving the train here, the SEC more than the Big Ten right now, but I think the Big Ten's positioned itself to make a bold move. They stiff-armed the College Football Players Association when Jason Stahl, their director, was working with the Penn State football team to try to organize to get some of their issues on the table. And Warren came in and, and stiff-armed Jason. And I think part of that was, look, we have all these other things in play here. We've got Congress. We've got the possibility of getting favorable rulings and some of these other pathways. And so we're not ready to sit down yet. Warren's a smart businessman. He comes out of the NFL culture. You look at the, the package he put together for the Big Ten's media, broadcast media deals. It's very sophisticated and very forward thinking. And I think that at some point, this is going to be driven by interest convergence. When any group of interests that have tension can find a way to move forward, pursuing their independent interests in a win-win way, that's interest convergence. That's the way the world works. And I think that the Power Five conferences, particularly the SEC and the Big Ten, could look at this and say, this is an opportunity for us to get what we want, which is stability and peace in the labor force, and give the athletes some of what they want, and we're prepared to sit down at a table and strike some kind of an agreement. And then we can walk away, both sides can walk away and say, we both won. Honestly, I'm not quite sure what that looks like. There's been some discussion about that. There's going to be a forum that the Drake Group is sponsoring next week that's going to talk about this, some kind of collective bargaining light that doesn't give the athletes employee status and protection under the NLRA. I think that's fool's gold. And I don't think that that leaves the athletes with much except the promise. We've heard promises for decades from the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. But unless those promises are enforceable through a contract, a formal contract, and you could have a breach of contract action if the universities didn't uphold their end of the bargain, or through formal collective bargaining under the protections of the NLRA. I don't see any meaningful progress if the athletes don't have enforceable remedies in any kind of discussion like that. So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. But I think there's more incentive now for the Big Ten, for example, and the SEC, for example, to explore that opportunity if they don't feel like they have that ace in the hole in Congress. And then the other thing that could happen too, and I've touched on this briefly, this could be a time where the inevitable evolution of conference realignment just hits warp speed and you have the Big Ten and the SEC making their power plays and you have these two or maybe three super conferences that create essentially an NFL product. And if they do that and then they say, you know what, we don't need to exist under the NCAA umbrella, we need 
antitrust immunity under the Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961 as to our media agreements. We need antitrust immunity as to our labor force. And here's what we're willing to agree to with the athletes. And they can talk about what they want, but we'll hammer out a deal that's ensconced into federal law. And we will get immunity on the backside of that. And then we'll also get preemption that will keep the states from trying to compete in the regulatory market. And the employee issue would be solved by the agreement. So that might be another pathway here that nobody's really talked about. I've talked about it just a little bit, but I think that there could be an opportunity here for the marketplace to just go where it has been heading for decades. And that is to the second round of realignment on the backside of the creation of the Power Five. And you have these super conferences that then look at their business model honestly. And then I think they could go to Congress with a straight face and say, this is the new college sports. This is a new big time sports market in football and presumably basketball. I don't know how the other sports would fit into this, but they could do that. And I think that is a more reality-based approach. I mean, I think part of the resistance in Congress has been that the NCAA and Power Five have come in trying to sell their century-long hypocrisy and the amateurism lie and the student-athlete lie. And when you come to Congress operating within those lies, you lose credibility. I think if they came in with an entirely new business model that was going to operate independent of those values and they struck an intelligent deal with the athletes, they could get the protections that they want. And I think if the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the Power Five, the, particularly the SEC and the Big Ten, if they come in with that reality-based approach to what they want, I think they are more likely to get some bipartisan buy-in here, and they don't have to play all these games behind the scenes. But the question then would be, how are the athletes' interests and rights going to be adequately protected in what would become really a negotiation, a collective bargaining agreement with Congress. That's what that would look like. And it would be a, somewhat of a unique model, but this is a unique business entity. And the professional sports leagues have worked out all their stuff. They get antitrust immunity with their media deals through the Sports Broadcasting Act. And then they get immunity from their labor restrictions through formal collective bargaining and the non-statutory antitrust immunity that comes along with it when you engage in formal collective bargaining under the NLRA. So they, they have all their stuff taken care of. A, a new college entity that looks just like the NFL would have to do some important negotiations and they would have to make some important concessions to get the protections that the professional leagues have. I think that the Congress would be receptive to that so long as there was a set of protections for the athletes that passes the blush test. But we're not there yet because they've refused to talk about the athletes' interests and their opposition to the athletes' bill of rights, which has tried to get some of these issues on the table. The Athletes' Bill of Rights is essentially trying to put on the table in Congress what would be on the table in collective bargaining. And the NCAA and Power Five's response to that is up yours. These are non-starter issues. The Athletes' Bill of Rights is now in its second iteration and it's pulled the revenue sharing component out. So it's moved towards the NCAA side. But I think a political environment that's less friendly to the NCAA and Power Five in the short run really incentivizes them to talk about some of these other pathways, to talk about them honestly, and to put them on the table in the light of day and say, how do we make this work? And to do that, they're going to have to have a fundamental change in strategy and philosophy, and I think importantly, a change of heart. Is that possible? Who knows? And this comes back to one of the central themes that I've talked about in this podcast and in the regulation of college sports, and that is that when you have the same people who created this mess arrogating to themselves the authority to try to change the business model and try to clean up the mess, you've got a real big problem. And that's exactly what we have right now. And I think this is a good time. This is a moment of opportunity for athletes to step up and start asserting themselves in the political process. That hasn't happened yet, and it needs to happen. And it's nice to have all these things going on the legal and regulatory side and litigation and administrative 
agency action and all that stuff. But I think the most powerful pathway to change is for the athletes to tell their story. And we haven't heard their story. And I think that they need to feel empowered to do that. Again, this was a thinking out loud episode. I was watching what was happening Tuesday night and I had in my mind a certain way that it was going to end and it didn't end that way. And so what does it mean? what does that look like now? And so I, I wanted to get my thoughts out there. I'm going to be following up on what's happened in Congress. And it's so important to understand the history of the NCAA's legislative campaign and what's in these bills. Because one of the features of this entire debate about congressional intervention that has troubled me from the very beginning is that the NCAA and Power Five, through a very sophisticated, well-thought-out strategic plan, got a running head start in a Republican-controlled Senate in 2019. And they were very effective at cementing in their narrative. And that basic template hasn't changed. And even when the Democrats took control of the Senate after the 2020 elections, they didn't go back and look at the assumptions that were built into the template that the NCAA established in early 2020. So those have been in place and they are NCAA Power 5 friendly. They've, they haven't been dismantled. We haven't gone back and looked at the, some of the things that the NCAA and Power 5 just leaped over in their request for protective federal legislation, including how in the world they could ever be entitled to the three things they were asking for, including preemption. No, preemption has been used very cautiously and only to protect vital national interests like national security, civil rights, nuclear safety, safe drug products, and hazardous materials. I mean, it, it hasn't been used to advance the commercial interests of private nonprofit entities. And that's what the NCAA and Power Five were asking Congress to do. And we never had that discussion. We just leaped right to the fact that, oh, we have a patchwork of laws and we have all kinds of problems. We're going to have 50 different standards. We have to do something immediately. And the only way to do that is to eliminate states from the regulatory field. I mean, that was absurd on its face. It's proven to be false because the impact of those state name, image and likeness laws has been nil, pun intended, because they're not enforced. First of all, there is far more uniformity in those laws than the NCAA and Power Five would ever admit. But more importantly, it doesn't matter what's in those laws if they're not enforced. So you haven't had a single state with a single state name, image, and likeness law or an executive order take a single action against anyone that is subject to their regulatory authority. And you look at the state of Florida. Florida has this nil law. They tried to amend it and pull it back like Alabama. Well, Alabama repealed theirs and South Carolina suspended theirs. But this Florida law that everybody was saying, hey, this is the gold standard when it was announced in, in June of 2020, it is now an albatross around the Power Five schools and the Group of Five schools in the state of Florida. So nobody's paying attention to it. And you have the Miami Collective being the poster collective for everything that's wrong with this name, image, and likeness market. And the state of Florida hasn't done a damn thing. And neither have the universities. And neither has the NCAA. So what is the purpose of eliminating the states from the regulatory field when they're really not even participating in it. It doesn't make any sense. It's just breathtaking that the NCAA and Power Five have been able to get away with these absurd narratives when there is a mountain of evidence that is inconsistent with those narratives, but nobody wants to talk about it. And that brings me to a related thought that I bumped up against earlier in the episode. And that relates to the importance of understanding what's happening in Congress and what has happened in Congress since the NCAA and Power Five went on offense in the spring of 2019. And that is in all of these discussions about the possibility of some type of negotiation-oriented resolution to all of these problems in college sports, there has been an assumption that the NCAA and the Power Five conferences, particularly now Big Ten, the SEC, and whoever else might be a player going forward, that they would, in good faith, sit down at a bargaining table when the time is right and do the right thing voluntarily, completely outside of and completely independent of any legal, regulatory, or legislative authority forcing them to do what they might not want to do. And I think if we get to that 
hypothetical and we get to the initial stages of the SEC or the Big Ten saying, look, let's just sit down and talk with the players. It's so important to understand that the athletes have a template for how the owners, so to speak, this in, in this analogy to the professional sports model, the power five are the owners and the individual institutions are stakeholders and investors in this product. And they have their set of interests. We know how the owners are going to behave, not because we have to speculate, but because this entire legislative campaign going back to 2019 can be defined by the collective bargaining metaphor. And really what's happened is the NCAA and the Power Five and the big time football interests saying, these are the terms under which we will negotiate. And those terms have been so far, my way or the highway. And we're going to take everything we want. We'll give you uh, whatever we decide to give you. And we don't give a damn what you think. And that would be the equivalent of the owners coming into to a collective bargaining discussion. Say the NBA is in the process of renegotiating their collective bargaining agreement. And if the owners just came in and said, look, this is our new view of this business model. And we're going to have absolute iron-fisted control over every name, image, and likeness opportunity or endorsement opportunity that any player in this league may have. We're not going to allow the franchises to pay you tens of millions of dollars. We've decided that you're playing for the love of the game and that you should be given basically a stipend that allows you to meet your basic living expenses. And then we have absolute control over your work conditions and you can't come back and complain about your treatment by your franchise. That's what the NCAA and Power Five are saying in this metaphorical collective bargaining process that is played out in their campaign in the Senate. And that's not a good faith position. But if the athletes want to really study up on how they should approach some kind of collective bargaining light that doesn't have the force of law, they need to understand what they're up against. And part of what I have been trying to do with my advocacy and through this podcast is to help the athletes and the people who care about the athletes' interests to understand exactly what they're up against. And I would say that understanding the Power Five NCAA collective bargaining light playbook is even more important now than ever because of the reduced likelihood, in my judgment, that there's going to be any quick, decisive action that runs exclusively through the NCAA Power Five interest and Republican senators. And I've had friends of mine in the athletes' rights community say, you know, look, there's no chance that Congress is going to get involved here in a meaningful way. I disagree with that for all the reasons that I've talked about at length in the podcast. But if you're of that mindset, I think it would be a huge strategic misstep if you didn't look carefully at the Power 5 NCAA playbook, and it's right there, hiding in plain sight. And I think that at what may be an inflection point in the, these discussions about athletes' rights, it's important that the people who are going to be advocating on behalf of athletes' rights or sitting down at some preliminary meetings, that they understand exactly what they're up against and what the uh, opposition, the people at the other side of the table, what they want and how they have gone about trying to get what they want. If you don't have a really thorough understanding of the way that these people see the world, they're going to kick your ass. They have some of the most sophisticated business people on the planet in the sports entertainment industrial complex working behind the scenes 24-7 trying to position the interests of the big time college sports enterprise to preserve the status quo. That's their goal. And to offer as little to these athletes as possible because they're viewing it really through a professional sports lens. And these are business decisions. The, these aren't values decisions. These guys don't give a damn about values and all this garbage that the NCAA has been relying on for the last hundred years to gaslight the public about the truth of its business model. These are business decisions. And when that hypothetical collective bargaining light occurs and those negotiations are done and there's some kind of quote-unquote deal, the Power Five and the NCAA and all their lawyers and lobbyists and corporate partners, they're not going to give a damn about fairness or what the athletes didn't get. They're going to walk away saying, we got as much as we could get to protect our interests. And they had a seat at the table. And if they didn't get their interests protected the way they wanted to, then tough shit. That, that's the way these people think. And so 
I think it's really important, not just for the advocates, but for the athletes themselves to really understand what's going on. So when I start talking about these bills, bill by bill, and look at the timeline that accompanies legislative campaign in Congress beginning in 2019, you really see some important patterns emerging, not just in the substance of these bills, but the way that the power brokers have gone about trying to impose their will on a system that's supposed to be based on representation and open and free debate. And they have been very effective at preventing any meaningful debate and discussion in Congress on on the truth of what's in these bills and the true consequences of what's in these bills. All right. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this thing out. And I'll be paying attention to what happens in these Senate races that have yet to be called and it's likely to be a very interesting week or two here so i want to thank you so much for joining it's always an honor and a privilege to have you and i hope to have you back for the next episode of the big amateurism monologues take care